Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. To learn more about our church, please visit us online by visiting ccloto.org or download our app in your app store today. As we jump into today's message, our hope and our prayer is that you'd be challenged and encouraged in your walk and relationship with Jesus. Now, let's jump into the word together. We're jumping back into our series, That Doesn't Make Sense. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel chapter 17, which we all know is David and Goliath, right? And you're probably going to hear a little bit different version of it than what we remember in Sunday school, you know? Um, So I I do see a few littles, and I'm I'm just going to preach faithfully the word. And so if it's a little gruesome, um, you know, just have them snuggle up with you at night for the next few nights and, you know, calm their fears, and it'll be great. Um, I do want to say thank you uh, last week as, you know, just allowing the spirit to move, you know, we kind of paused on this series to focus on the sanctity of life. And I heard so many life group leaders talk about the bell. Right, And so if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can go back and watch last week. And, and one person was telling us they were watching online from home with our online campus. And they said, you know, we were, we were in the living room, we were watching service, and we kept hearing that bell go off every 30, 35 seconds. And he goes, I started getting mad. He goes, I was about to text you guys and be like, man, you guys, your online is horrible. You need to fix the sound. There's something dingy. Like, got so, like, kind of frustrated. Got up and walked out of the living room. Like, I'm done with this, right? He was like, I can't pay attention with this bell going off every, you know, 30 seconds. And then when I explained what that was representing, his wife had to call him back into the room and said, hey, this is what that was about. And, and so many people loved that analogy. But it's so sad that there's so many of us that hate that that's the reality of our world. And so, you know, what's the work of us as the church, you know, to keep praying and to be a voice for the voiceless. And so uh, if you haven't had a chance, I encourage you to go back and watch that. But we're continuing in our That Doesn't Make Sense sermon series where we're talking about how faith is going to make us do some crazy things. And so if you uh, have your Bibles, 1 Samuel 17, a lot of reading this morning, right? But I mean, it's church. Are we supposed to be heavy in the word of God, right? Okay, I thought I'd have got an amen on that, but maybe not. So, okay. All right, here we go. Starting in verse 1. So now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah is Ephes Damon. And Saul, the men and the men of Israel, were gathered and encamped in the valley of Allah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. A cubit's about 18 inches, so this dude's about nine foot tall. And he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like that of a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. This dude had more armor than I weigh, and he just carried this around on his body, right? 
Verse 8, he stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself. Let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Uh, just to pause real quick. What I love about the Bible, one of the things is, you know, we read some of these stories and we think, is that really how things went down in the ancient world? There is like, did that really happen? And this is a warfare tactic that was very common to that day. So a lot of times we think of just two armies with, you know, swords and spears and they just go battling it right out, every man for himself kind of a moment. And there, that did happen. But there were other times where there would be two armies would line up and and then there would be a champion, kind of their lead main guy, and then their main person. And they would fight, in a sense, representing the army as a whole. If you've seen that movie, I think it's like Troy with Brad Pitt in it. All the ladies are like, oh, which one? No. Right? Um, <clears throat> there's a scene in that movie where the same thing happens. And, and the character of Brad Pitt, he's playing Achilles, kills you know some big, giant-looking, Goliath-like kind of monster or whatever. That was a real warfare that happened. And so when we study, you know, of many things, but when we study the ancient world, even in how warfare took place, and we read the Bible, it lines up. It's really accounting real people, real events, real places. And to take it in a little rabbit trail of a spiritual note, you know, sometimes we look at Adam and Eve in the garden, and we think, Adam, you schmuck, right? If it would have been me, I would have kept my woman from eating from that tree. I would have put her in her place. We, why did you do that? Like, I'd have, you know. And here's the problem. It's kind of like that champion out of all humanity that has failed. Adam had the best shot at winning that battle, but he failed. And so when sin entered Adam, it entered all of humanity. Why? Because he was our best shot of winning that battle. So we would have not fared any better whatsoever. Pick back up the story. Verse 12. So now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse. He was the son of Jesse who had eight sons. And in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. So if you remember, you know, we talked about judges, you know, Joshua, and then we had the cycle of judges. And now the last judge was a guy named Samuel, who was kind of a prophet. And all the people wanted a king. They wanted to be like the other nations. Israel wanted to be like everybody else around them. They didn't want to be the awkward, weird homeschool kid. You know, I homeschool my kids, so I can say that, right? You know, we want to we fit in with everybody else. We want the cool shoes. We want the cool clothes that if you look at our kids dressing, it's not that cool. You know what I mean? But they wanted to be like everybody else. Give us a king. And God said, all right, have it your way. And so that's how Samuel then anoints Saul to be that first king of Israel. So this is before Israel's divided. It's a unified nation. And so Saul, he's old, advanced in years, Verse 13, and the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of the three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and then the next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shema. And David was the youngest. And the three eldest sons followed Saul. 
So have the three youngest sons going to battle, going to war in the military with Saul. Then we got David, the youngest. He's probably 16, 17, if that's. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And for 40 days, the Philistine came forward, took his stand morning and evening. So for 40 days, we're in this valley of Allah. You got the Philistines on this side. You got Israel on this side. And for 40 days and 40 nights, this nine-foot giant covered in bronze armor ready to throw down is just cursing <laughs> at Israel, right? Saying all kinds of stuff. Your mama's so fat, she like, he's just bringing it, right? He's trying to pick a fight. Somebody going to have some courage to come up against him. And you know what the significance of 40 is in the Bible? Think of Noah. Noah was on the ark, and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. He was up there for 40 days and 40 nights. Israel wandered in the wilderness because they didn't want to walk into the promised land. And they wandered for how many years? 40. Jesus led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He was there for 40 days and 40 nights. After the resurrection of Jesus and before and once he ascended, 40 days. See, when you study that in Scripture, like the significance of 40 is always tied to trials and testing. And so if you're looking at your life and thinking, man, it's been a rough few days, you got a few more to go. You know, so many times we think, oh, my life, you know, like it's been rough. Like if Jesus was in the tomb three days, why, is it, why do I got to go through this pain and suffering longer than three days? Because any time in my life, and, and I'm not going to go like clock it perfectly at 40, but when I look at those seasons that God was really bringing a work into my life, it's about 40 days. But how quickly do we jump ship after just a few days because we can't hack it? And we don't really want what the Lord is doing in our life. We don't want that fresh work. Why? Because it hurts. So if you're in the thick of it right now, just bear down and hold tight to Jesus, that he's doing a work. And it might take a little bit longer than just a few days in our Amazon Prime Netflix kind of world. We don't like that. But let the Lord work in your life. Verse 17. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also, take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand and see if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Because that's what I want when I'm in battle and I'm about to die. It's just some smoked Gouda. You know what I mean? Need some cheese. Now Saul and the... Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Allah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and he left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment. He came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, and the army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with him, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. The difference, and David heard them. 
So David's not even looking for it. He's just good for his brothers, needs a token so he can take it back to his dad to say, hey, your oldest sons are still alive. Everything's good. And as he's conversing with them, he hears this guy open up his mouth. Do what? What are you saying about? And so the story continues. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches. We'll give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? You're already seeing David's heart. He's more caring about the reproach of Israel than what he could gain out of killing the Philistine. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Why does that matter? Because circumcision was a sign given unto Abraham of the covenants. Who is this uncovenant Philistine that's not in covenant with our God, that's speaking against our God? So he's, he's grounding himself in the promises of God of that covenant. That he should defy the armies of the living God. And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. So if anybody kills him, you get you get paid pretty well from the king. Shoot, even the king's going to give you his daughter, which most likely she wasn't a moose, you know, probably not bad looking. You know, if she was real ugly, nobody would be like, I'm not fighting for an ugly chick, right? She kind of smoking. All right, you know, I might, I might risk it. I might risk it. And then you don't have to pay taxes. Shoot, I'm waiting for that deal right now. Not to pay taxes? Let's go. Now Eliab, the eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? He goes, I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. He's looking at his little brother saying, you just want to see a dead body, don't you? You just want to see somebody get murdered. Like, how twisted, messed up are you? Like, what are you doing out there with them sheep that you just want to come and see somebody die? And David said, what have I done? What have I done now? And was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. And when the words that David spoke, saying, who's this uncircumcised Philistine? What's, what, why are we just standing around? Why this guy's just taunting us? And it's, he's taunting against God. And we're all perfectly fine with that? Like, so he's speaking these words. And it made it, and it repeated them to Saul. And he sent for him, verse 32. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him. And I struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, struck him and killed him. Now, if I ever got in a fight with a bear, I'm probably not going to grab that bear by his beard. One, I didn't even know bears had beards, right? Can you imagine just walking up to some dude and just grabbing his beard? Like that's like, you're a man at that point. (laughs) 
And so here's these lions and bears. He's just grabbing them by the beard, striking them down, killing them. He says, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, oh my. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has, again, look at David's heart. What is he offended by? He has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord, Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to him, go. And the Lord be with you. So then Saul, he clothed David in his armor. He put on a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. See, Saul was trying to like, all right, if you're going to do it, I'm at least going to try to give you some good armor. Here's the problem. That armor wasn't made for David. That armor was made for Saul. And there's a little bit of a leadership principle here. You know, because a lot of people ask, either me or Cliff, he was here for service, who was the senior pastor for 17 years, and he's still here. And people ask, how's that going with the former senior pastor and the new senior pastor? Like, is there a power struggle? They're like, no way, Cliff would win. You know what I mean? Have you seen his boys wrestle? Like, they're state camps for a reason. Like, I'm not wrestling the dad. <laughs> There's no power struggle because the battle is not his or mine. The battle is the Lord's. And when I came to Calvary, there were certain things that, you know, didn't happen that in normally unhealthy transitions, the things that could happen where, well, that's not how Pastor Cliff always did it. And, and honestly, I had to kind of psych myself up thinking, am I going to have to handle certain situations like that? And thank the Lord we didn't. But here's the idea. God did a work through Cliff. Amen. And we are harvesting the fruits of some of that work. And it's amazing. But I can't put on Cliff's armor. That was made for Cliff. I have to put on my own armor. And one day we're going to hand this thing called Calvary Chapel, Lake of the Ozarks, to its next senior pastor. I'm not going to live forever, right? And if you're looking at me, it's getting close, right? I tell my wife, I got a good 10 years left, and I've been saying it for seven, right? But I'm going to look at the next senior pastor and say, don't do, oh, this is what Nick did. If anybody says that, so you kick him out of the church, right? No, don't do what I did. Don't put on my armor. Lead the church and how God is calling you to be their leader. And so there's a little bit of a leadership principle that we try to imitate so many people in our life, in our ministries. Oh, I want to be like this person, or I want to preach like him, or I want to serve like them. Or you could just go with how God has equipped you. At some point, David had to know, am I trying to wear Saul's armor, or am I trying to kill Goliath? And those are two different things. And sometimes we lose sight of the true mission because we just want to wear Saul's armor. When the goal for us is to kill Goliath, we have to keep the mission before us. Verse 41. And the Philistine... Oh, skipped ahead. 38. Then Saul clothed David in his armor. We talked about that. It was not tested them. They said, I cannot go, David. Okay, so David puts off the armor. Verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's pouch, his sling in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. The Philistine moved forward. And David came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth 
ruddy, handsome in appearance, kind of like myself. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and of the beast of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with sword, spear, with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down, cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beast of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into your hand. See, I think David comes down, and they're jawing at each other. Like, a good fight is about to be. you got to say a few words, you know what I mean? you got to establish dominance. you got to stare down, even before a boxing match. And he's telling him, and he's like, I'm not coming to you in earthly, normal weaponry. I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord. And what I loved about this is I picture David talking to Goliath, and then at one point he pauses, and I wonder if he looked at all of Israel, this army that is lined up, and that's when he says, yeah, I'm going to kill Goliath, and that's going to be a testimony to the Philistines and all them, but I'm also going to kill Goliath, that all this assembly that's been standing there scared for 40 days and 40 nights, they don't have the faith or the courage to stand firm when the name of God is being defied, I'm going to kill Goliath so that you guys know that the Lord saves not with sword or with spear, but it's his battle. But how many of us in the church stand like the army of Israel while the name of our God is being defied in our country and we're too scared to stand up because Goliath is too big? And we think, what could, who, who are we here in the Lake of the Ozarks to stand firm for the name of Jesus? And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran, stood over the Philistine took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout, pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharah, that word, as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp, and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Can you imagine walking back from your fights? You didn't even know you were going to fight. You were just bringing provisions to your brother. But because you heard the name of God being so mocked, I got to fight not even a choice in me. I got to stand firm for the Lord. And you're walking back home and you're just carrying a giant's head. 
like that. We didn't make that in Sunday school, you know, like when we were doing craft time, we like, what are we making today? Oh, paper mache heads of Goliath. He's like, yes, right? He's like, all right, I need some red paint and I'm going to need a lot of it, right? I'm going to hang this up in my room. Like, we, we didn't do that. I don't know why. Like, we're just trying to be biblical here, right? Amen. Like, at least the coloring page of that, we're like, what's this? Oh, Goliath's head. Okay, here we go. But you look at David and Goliath and you hear this story. See, the other soldiers, they were so focused on the danger of the battle. They were so focused on the material rewards to be won. And it seems that David alone focused on the reputation of Israel and the honor of the living God. See, where everybody else was like, man, if I could kill Goliath, like King's daughter, she's, she's not bad looking. I, I'd love not to have to pay taxes again. Like, I, he's nine foot tall. He's, he's big. I don't know. I don't want to die. Can you imagine the spear, like, just coming through your chest? You know, like, that's not like a flesh wound. Tis a flesh wound. No. <laughs> like, all you are is a wound after that. You're like, this is going to be bad. And so many pe- people in that army just let fear of the physical and the material and even thinking, like, I don't even have the resources to be able to kill this guy. Like, I'm not even that talented with a sword or a spear. Like, I, I got to be in that class. Like, I wish I would have paid attention, you know? But it truly shows David's heart to be that man after God's own heart. We, we talk about that in the church, that David was a man after God's own heart. But here we see it. Because even in this battle, he's caring more about the things of God than he is his own life. And that's where his heart is at. That if this is what God cares about, this is what I'm going to care about. And God cares about his name. God cares about his reputation. And so he saw the problem. He saw this battle in spiritual terms, not just in material, fleshly, physical kind of concepts. This is a real spiritual battle that he's in. And that's the same for us as the church. We're in a very real spiritual battle every day. We have a very real enemy that wants to do nothing more than to steal kill and destroy we can't be shocked by that we can't be surprised you know sometimes we look at each other and we'll say oh have you read the news I can't even believe and then we hear about it Christians being killed in other countries and bombings of churches and all these things like can you even believe that's happening yes why because darkness hates the light I think what's happened so much, the part that we can't believe is how disconnected we are from it all and how cushioned we've made our lives from the truth of of the spiritual warfare that we're in. And so even for us as Calvary, it's it's a spiritual battle that we're in. And so when we talk about the top initiative and the heart for the house, it's, it's not about a building. It's about a spiritual battle that we're in. And so when we talk about the heart for the house, the three kind of lines that we're talking about is we want to be a home for the broken, not a house. We want to be a home for the broken. We want to be an encouragement for the hurting. And we want to be a family for the follower of Jesus. See, all those words were prayerfully painstakingly picked because we wanted to focus on people first than it is about having a bigger building and taller it wasn't about that it never has been and it never will be at least as long as I'm the senior pastor because we need to care about the things that God cares about 
If the church burns tomorrow, is our insurance paid up? Um, <laughs> I looked at our treasurer to make sure. Guess what we're going to do next week? We're going to gather for worship in the ash. Well, what are you going to do for kids' ministry? What if it's raining? What if it's okay? We'll deal with it. Because it's never been about the building. It's always been about the people. And so when we talk about rethinking our space and we look merely just at the numbers, we say things like, that doesn't make sense. And it doesn't. If we look at it in material, physical ways. Because we're thinking wrong. We have to see that we're in a spiritual battle. Because when I look at the heart for the house of being a home for broken people, being an encouragement to those that are hurting in our community, to be a family, to be a faith family for those that want to follow Jesus, that's people-focused. That's the spiritual terms that we need because God always cares about people more than he does the building, for sure. And so even here, the mission and the vision for Calvary, it's, it's not a bigger building, it's not about that, and it's, it's actually not even the same. And if you were at Vision Sunday or you've been serving on a team, we've kind of been dripping it in, that even the mission statement of Calvary has changed to be better equipping, articulating who we are to be as a church in the community. Nothing wrong with the old one. If anything, I feel like it's Saul's armor. Saul's armor is wonderful. Saul probably used it many times. I don't look good in Saul's armor. It doesn't fit, right? You ever like put on clothes that don't fit and you try to move around, you look awkward? That's, but when I think about who has God called us to be a church today as Calvary Chapel in this community, it's about seeking the kingdom of God first, not our own well-being individually and even as a church. Matthew 6.33 is pretty clear. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, then all these things will be added unto you. So there's, there's an order of importance that the Lord gives us as the body of Christ. And so we're merely articulating kingdom before Calvary and Jesus over everything. And there's going to be so many things that we do that like, oh yeah, kingdom impact, that's what we need to be about. Until we start doing things that are more about kingdom impact than Calvary impact. And that's where we just look at each other. And when we're going to get a little struggling in that, we just have to look at each other and say, kingdom before Calvary. It's not about us. We decrease, John 3.30, he increases. So regardless of square footage and drywall, and like, I, I don't care about those things. I have other people that care about those things. We have a development team. We have a stewardship team. They're focusing on that. Because for me as a pastor, I want to be people-focused. And as a church, I want to be people-focused. And we need to see this problem in spirit spiritual terms, not in material, not in financials, but with a heart that's after the things that God cares about. And so we are a growing church, not just numerically, but even in depth. Like the first time, uh, first couple weeks, me and my wife, as we were leading the college ministry, we're sitting down and we're talking and just how it's like, man, I graduated out of youth ministry and here I am right back in the middle of it. It's like, here we go. But after it's been about a year, we're really seeing a lot of growth in depth and how God is working and moving in some of these students. It's amazing. You hear how life groups are, are growing and, and people are just really stepping out in faith as they're meeting together and discussing scripture and their own lives. They're growing in a depth there. Like, that's what we want to see. Like, I, this is me. 
way of description, not prescription. Like, I don't trust a pastor that doesn't want to grow his church. He doesn't have the heart of Jesus. Like this, like us four and no more mentality, like that's not found in scripture. And it's not just numerical growth. That's not what we're talking about. How do we become fully faithful followers of Jesus? Like that's where we want to grow. And how do we invite people into a relationship like that? How we continue, because there's still more work to do in the lake. There's still people that do not have a relationship with Christ. And we can't keep gathering on Sunday mornings being okay with that. And so I think about the numbers, you know, and it's not just the work that London's doing in Cal Kids, right? Even last week, we had to shift some kids around to make space for more. Even today, at 1030 last night, she was texting, trying to find another uh, helper, a worker in Cal Kids because we're short and we need more. You know, that's a, those are numbers that we have to look at and her team is doing great, but that's not the one that stands out to me the most. It's not Sean. Pastor Sean and our parking lot team, even though in the last month we've had a couple uh, little fender benders in our parking lot because the parking's so tight, right? You know, if your car got a ding in it, hey, Jesus still loves you, right? (laughs) And not only that, like there's a few times that I've seen Sean like swoop down, grab up a toddler that's just running out in the parking lot so they don't get smoked by a car. So like if you're you're on premises, just drive slowly, please. Wait until you get on 42 to drive like a demon, you know, like no demon. Demons on campus. It's kind of a rule of the church. <laughs> so wait until you get out there. Like, you know, we all want to go home alive. You know, how bad would that be? Yeah, I came to church and they killed me. Um, but I, you know, that's not a number that I'm looking at. It's not the ushers. Like even the issue we had today, like, hey, if you can go upstairs again, thank you to all those that are up there. That's not the issue. And our ushers do a great job trying to make sure everybody has a seat. You know, the most impactful number that I'm looking at as we are growing, the number seven. You're probably like, oh, yes, pastor, good biblical number. Holdness, and we start going, no, 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 no. Seven people on one Sunday left church because there was no space for them. That number wakes me up at night. And if you're okay with that, I'm not okay with you. Because that's not a kingdom first mentality. That's a Calvary first mentality. That's a me first mentality. You know, could, could you imagine, let, let's say it's Christmas morning, you know, we as adult kids are going home to be with our parents and, you know, we wake up, we actually took a shower, put real clothes on, try to dress up nice for mom, even have a couple bags of gifts that we're going to bring, drive through the crazy snow, we get home, the house that we grew up in, we knock on the door, your parents answer and it's like, oh, hey, well, hey, your aunts and uncles showed up, we have a lot of your cousins here, we just don't have any room for you. You just go, like, you just go back home. Be like, we share the same last name. We're family here. Like, I'll sit on the floor. Like, you're you're really going to tell me that there's no room for me to be a part of this family? Yeah, yeah, sorry about that. We just kind of ran out of space. Didn't make enough food, you know, how it goes. So, like, hey, call me sometime, maybe. You know, once they leave, you know, I'm sure we'll tick them off soon, and they can leave, and, and then we'll have room for you. Like, who would love that feeling? And why are we okay as a church to do that? That if we really are going to be a home for broken people, let's be a home for broken people then. That we're going to find them in their brokenness. And again, we can't look at them and think that, oh, because their brokenness is different than ours, then they're disqualified from being a part of the family. 
because if their brokenness disqualifies them, then our brokenness disqualifies us. But we allowed all of us in here today, didn't we? We didn't stop you at the door and being like, all right, is it acceptable brokenness or is it like not acceptable brokenness? Like, is your sin like acceptable to the church? Is it only respectable sins or is it one of those sins that we can't have you? Yeah, you can't fellowship with us. No, we want to be home for the broken. We want to be an encouragement to the hurting. And think of how many people are hurting in our community and our culture. And we want to be a family for the follower of Jesus. This is what it means to be kingdom first, to have that kind of heart posture. And we need to walk confidently into the spiritual battle that we're in. And we look at David and we think, well, how was David so confident walking into battle with Goliath? Like, I get it. Like, you grabbed a bear by its beard. Like, that's pretty cool, right? Like, that, that's tattoo worthy. You know what I mean? Like, you got to get a tattoo of that or something to remember. But where did his confidence come from? And how do we have that same confidence where we care more about the things of God than we do of ourselves or even our own well-being? Is it because David practiced on lions and bears? No. That gave him the skills, but not the confidence. That's depending on your own abilities and resources. But again, if you look back, see, one of the things that I uh, can get a little frustrating about the Word of God, let me explain, right, is the chapter and the verse divisions were added 1,500 years after it was written. And we didn't put them in the best spots. And what's so hard at times is we'll read and be like, oh, I got the end of the chapter four. And then we think new thought starting chapter five, when really it's the same, same thought that's happening. And we can divide that and we can forget what happened in the previous chapter, like it has no bearing on this chapter. But if you go to 1 Samuel 16, if you look at verse 13, you have Samuel who was told by God, all right, you guys had your chance at a king and his name was Saul. It didn't work out too well. Let me show you who my king is going to be. I need you to go to Jesse's house. So Samuel goes to Jesse's house, says, hey, let me see your sons. He lines them all up. And the Lord doesn't move at all. He's saying, is it the oldest? He's the tallest. He's the oldest. He's probably good looking. Like he's a king, nothing from the Lord. And he works all the way down, except Jesse had one of his sons out into the field. And so the, the Lord didn't move in Samuel to say, hey, this is, this is our king. And so Samuel's looking over at Jesse like, hey, like just doing my due diligence. Do you have any other sons whatsoever? He's like, well, I got the boy out in the field tending to the sheep. He's like, all right, let me do my due diligence. Bring him in. And that's when the Lord grabs a hold of Samuel and says, that's my king. Anoint him. And so 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, Samuel takes that horn of oil, which is an outward expression, kind of a, a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and he anoints him in the midst of his brothers, right? I'm sure that didn't cause a fight. And then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from, the day, from that day forward. Right? And so it's a little bit different where the Holy Spirit didn't indwell everybody in the Old Testament. It's a different dispensation where now it's all everyone who has put their faith and their trust in Jesus. The Holy Spirit indwells you. But in, in the Old Testament time, it was only specific people for specific reasons or responsibilities. But this is where David's confidence comes from from the presence and the promise of God. Because he could stand in front of Goliath and know that if I'm anointed to be the next king of Israel, how can Goliath kill me then? Either 
either God's lying and Goliath's going to kill me, or God is truth, and I can walk in that confidence. That's where his confidence came from. The promise and the presence of God in his life, knowing that, hey, I'm not king yet, and I'm standing before Goliath. So that only means one thing, that if God is who he says he is, and David believed that, and he had that kind of faith, then he knew Goliath couldn't win. He couldn't predict exactly how it was going to go down, right? But his confidence came from the promise of God. And the question that is always kind of fun is why did he grab five smooth stones? Because if you read all of Scripture, was like, was, was David just not that great of a shot, needed a little bit of backup? Like, was he doubting, you know, trying to get all the weapons he could? Like, what was that about? When you read all of Scripture, Goliath had four brothers. So he knew he was going to take out Goliath. And if any of his other brothers were going to feel a little froggy, he was ready to hop, right? Because of that confidence that he had in the Lord. It wasn't just even Goliath, but I know he's got brothers, and I'll take them out too if it need be. See, that's the kind of confidence I think the church needs to have. We're, we're a little froggy, and we're ready to hop at the moment that God is leading for us. And to think about, like, even just that sling. You know, sometimes we think of a slingshot, you know, is that like a little wishbone of a stick with a rubber band and little BBs? No, no, no. So in this era, sling was this long cord with like a leather pouch, and then the other end was a long cord. And you would tie one of those cords, the end of it, to your wrist, and you would hold the other end. And you could put like, and we're, we're not talking like a little pebble. You could put like a cue ball of a rock in this. And so David goes down, he gets five rocks. I'm talking like the size of a fist. And they would sling them, and when you were ready, you would let go of the one you're holding, and you would shoot that rock forward. That's what that sling was. And it's crazy because we think uh, in ancient warfare, like this, the assumption that the archers were the most accurate. But how they were making bows and arrows, they weren't accurate at all. That's why every time you see in like old movies that are trying to portray ancient warfare, they just lined up all the archers and just shot a barrage of arrows because they're not aiming. They couldn't. They weren't that great. They're just thinking, hey, we'll send a bunch of them over there. I'm sure we'll hit something. But if you wanted like sniper accuracy, you used a sling. One of my professors, when he was on his tour in Israel, he said they stopped somewhere and there were some small Israel boys that had slings like that and they had pop cans set up, you know, 20, 30 yards away and they were slinging, just knocking pop cans off, perfectly accurate with it. And then the part we think is like, oh, this kind of hit his head. Like they've, they've actually done some cool studies where they make like a fake human head and hit it with a sling. It, it would have ripped Goliath's half of his face off. Like when it says that the stone sunk into his forehead, like that is skull fracture. Like he's walking around with his like busted up head, brain sticking out, you know, snot and sinuses coming around, cut it off. He's like, I won. <laughs> I won. You know, like walking into the next shop, like, hey, can I get a cheeseburger and fry? Or do you want to deal with this here? Like, do you know who I am? Like, I, I would have kept that show and tell every year. Like, hey, did you guys hear? Right here. There we go. But look what it says there in verse 13 in chapter 16. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Where else did the spirit of the Lord rush upon men? Acts 2, the day of Pentecost. So us as believers, 
those that have put our faith and our trust in Jesus have that same indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But why are we walking in the same fear as Israel? We have the same spirit that led David. We need to have the same faith and the same courage. Because we're given four commands in Scripture in regard to the Holy Spirit. First one is be filled with the Spirit. Kind of like your gas tank goes down, you fill it back up, goes down, fill it back up. It means have a continual filling of the Spirit in your life, Ephesians 5. And then Galatians 5 tells us to walk by the Spirit. Don't walk by your own humanity and resources and abilities. Walk by the Spirit. And then we have do not grieve the Spirit, Ephesians 4. And do you know how you grieve the Spirit? By what comes out of your mouth. And even, I think, with that army standing there, how much non-verbally were they grieving the Spirit? Because so much fear and doubt in their life. And the last one is, do not quench the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5. And so, God wants to do a work in your life. And some of you know, like, He is doing a work in your life. And it's a good work. It's a fresh work. Don't quench that. Don't extinguish that. Even for us as Calvary, we're not going to quench that work that God is doing in and through us. If anything, we want to fan that into a bigger flame. But I get it. Like we read David and Goliath and we think, I'm never going to stand against a nine-foot giant. But honestly, all of us are in the valley of Allah. Right? You got one army up here, you got one army up here, and we're in the valley. And we're standing before a giant. See, our valley of Allah is between our head and our hearts. And the giant before us, fear, doubt, anxiety, depression, loneliness, lust, coveting. You just keep naming it. It might not be named Goliath, but we all have a name of that giant that is standing before us. And are we full of the Holy Spirit seeing the spiritual battle that we're in? Are we the army of Israel just standing off and just listening to the lies as if it's truth from that giant? See, for us as the church, we have to have that spiritual heart where we're not just looking at our lives for the physical things that they are, but knowing that God is doing a work in and through us. And some of the greatest giants that we're going to have are not before us, but within us. And so hold fast in your faith. Understand the promises of God. If you don't know them, study them. Get in the word. Understand the promises of Jesus. The the sheer fact that we take communion is us to understand his promise to be with us and understand the presence of God in our life. I think it's time for the church to stand up just a little bit more against the Goliaths as we're walking through those valleys.